0: I have been doing professional readings since 1996. And as an 8-year-old, I have a very vivid memory of my parents giving me my first Tarot deck. Well, who knows what tomorrow may bring?
4: Well, perhaps
5: this woman here, she claims she can divine the future.
0: What I love is when I don't know anybody And I I don't know the, the client, I don't know the person on the other side of the table, and I'm able to intuit things about them and their future, so to speak, that has nothing to do with what I could have known about them.
4: Well, we'll hear what she saw in Seth's future and find out whether there's any truth to the claim of prophecy, a talent that actually many people claim to have.
5: Including, by the way, some say the ancient Mayans, whose calendar doesn't seem to go beyond December 2012. And by the way, that's a fact that would come as a surprise to modern-day Mayans. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley
4: at Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. And as we do on
5: most Skeptic Checks, we'll begin by giving our brains a jump start on critical thinking with brains on vacation.
4: Although this time, far be it for either one of us to say that these brains that we're about to discuss are out to lunch. So maybe not quite brains on vacation.
5: Well, that's right. I'm pretty sure that the particle physicists working on the OPERA experiment, which is a collaboration between CERN and Geneva, where the Large Hadron Collider resides, and the Laboratori Nazionali del Gran Sasso, well, they're not lacking in gray matter.
4: And OPERA, by the way, stands for the Oscillation Project with Emulsion Racking Apparatus.
5: Indeed. However, however, a curious event at that facility stood hair follicles on end not long ago.
4: When the team claimed to have clocked tiny particles called neutrinos moving faster than light, and no one's hair would have stood higher than Einstein's, which was already pretty wild hair, because his theory of relativity ordained that nothing travels faster than the speed of light.
5: So the opera physicist repeated their experiment, and they got the same result. The neutrinos, produced in Switzerland and shot to Italy, showed up 60 billionths of a second sooner than expected.
4: So what was going on? Skeptic Phil Plate reports
2: they were just doing a timing experiment where they were sending neutrinos, which are a kind of subatomic particle, which travel very, very close to the speed of light, from one point to another, from Switzerland, where the Large Hadron Collider is, to their detectors in Italy. And when they did this and timed how long it took the neutrinos to travel from point A to point B, They found that they must have been moving faster than the speed of light. But just by a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, by 60 nanoseconds. And a nanosecond is a billionth of a second. So this was a very, very, very delicate, uh, careful measurement. So
5: they were actually studying the behavior of neutrinos, right? I mean, this was a neutrino experiment. It wasn't fundamental physics in, in that sense. But then they noticed that the neutrinos were getting to Italy 60 billionths of a second early.
2: That's right and that would mean that they were traveling faster than light or they had made a mistake. And as good cautious scientists who know that Einstein was probably right, what they did is instead of saying we have discovered faster than light neutrinos, they said we've got a really interesting result and they announced it and basically ask people to look into this and see if they could figure out if there was a problem with their experiment.
5: Well, maybe you could say something about the implications if these neutrinos really were
2: going faster than light. I mean, wouldn't that set the world on its ear? Well, according to everything we know about physics, and I mean everything we know about physics, faster-than-light travel is simply impossible. So if these neutrinos were moving faster than light, it means that we would have to rewrite a lot of the physics we know. So understandably, they were very concerned about this.
5: Well... I can imagine that from the public's point of view, faster than light travel, it sounds like the vindication of everything they've ever believed since Star Trek debuted, right? (laughs) You could have warp drive. I mean, you know, it opened up a whole new set of possibilities.
2: That's right. Not just faster than light travel, but time travel, all kinds of crazy stuff.
5: Well, just to put this in context, the neutrinos arrive 60 nanoseconds early. Now, the speed of light, as every school kid knows, is about one foot per nanosecond. All right, so that meant that if they just got the distance between Switzerland and Italy wrong by 60 feet, that would account for this. But
2: presumably, they knew all that. In fact, they know the distance between the emission source and the detector much, much, much more accurately than that. So, uh, you know, that was my first thought as well. You know, how accurate did they know the distance? And it turns out actually pretty well. So really it depended on the timing. And there were some other things that were going on, but they were able to, to account for all that stuff. And in the end, they, they were left with this 60 nanosecond anomaly. So what's happened? Uh, what's the latest? Well, they've just announced that there were actually two problems they found with their experiment. One was a problem in the basically timestamp that they were getting from the GPS. The other one had to do with what looks like a faulty fiber optic cable. Now, the problem is these work in opposite directions. The timestamp makes it look like the neutrinos might have been moving even faster, The faulty cable makes it look like they were traveling slower. Now, right now, everybody's sort of concentrating on that fiber optic cable because it turns out once they adjusted for that, that 60 nanosecond change basically disappeared. So, you know, it's interesting. I think what's going to happen is they're going to find out, yeah, that was the problem, and this timestamp problem kind of goes away, too. Everybody's expecting that these neutrinos were traveling at or very near the speed of light, but not faster. However, we can't just assume that, given these results. So hopefully they'll be very, very careful. And they are planning on redoing these experiments in the next couple of months. The, The people best set up to do this are the people from the Opera experiment. That's what it's called, the Italian detectors. And so they're going to redo it with everything adjusted to see what happens with that timing.
5: So bottom line, Phil, has the fat lady sung on this particular opera?
2: I don't think so yet, but she is definitely warming up in the wings. Phil Plate, thank you very much. Thank you, Seth.
4: Astronomer Phil Plate is a skeptic and the keeper of Discover Magazine's good blog,
0: badastronomy.com. When I am doing a reading i take the client's name and possibly even the question that they have and i put it in what i call the spiritual google search and hit return (laughs) and 40 billion pieces of information come downloaded into my brain into my psyche into my knowingness
4: Well, it seems neutrinos haven't broken the laws of physics, at least as we understand them, but perhaps there's some other strange transfer of energy taking place in the
0: ether. I'm Sue Wilhite. I am a Master Voyager Tarot consultant. What
5: can a Master Tarot consultant do?
0: I use the cards to focus my intuition. So I'm going to back up a moment and say that I think that everybody has intuition. The difference is sometimes you need to be trained in order to use it to its maximum effect.
5: Do you also consider yourself to be a psychic? Yes. And and does that mean so that you have some ability to see into the future, to, to intuit what my future might be?
0: In exactly the way that you put it, Seth. I intuit what your future might be. I don't believe, and decent psychics don't believe, that the future is set in stone.
5: All right, Sue, let's do a reading of me. What does that entail? What do we have to do to get started?
0: It helps if I have a question. That tends to focus things a little bit better.
5: Okay, well, I'll ask you a question I think everybody would ask, and that is, what about my financial future? After all, the economy's not good. Uh, You know, I might live a long time, which could be financially disastrous. Do I have to worry about that?
0: So... Give me just one second. So what I get is that 2012 it feels like a time for you, interestingly, a time of contraction, um, a time of sort of pulling in. And it kind of eases up September, October-ish, It feels like...
5: Well, that sounds like I ought to watch myself uh, later this year, but uh, that uh, things will turn around. Is there any long-term aspect of this that you can comment on?
0: I don't generally see out more than about a year.
5: Well, I'd like to ask you about some other aspects of my future. Should we uh, use the tarot cards? Would that make things a little bit more specific, do you think?
0: Uh, It should, yes. I use the cards to get into detail.
5: Sue and I are sitting facing one another at a small table about the size of a card table, actually. There's no crystal ball here. There is a deck of these tarot cards, and uh, Sue's shuffling them now.
0: I shuffle, and the client pulls the cards. All right. Okay, so I'm going to keep them in order there because the order matters. This first card, the Rejoicer, the Woman of Cups, generally has to do with open and honest expression of feelings. That's kind of the summary of the card. For you... What it feels like is there is something that is, um, yeah, it's opening up emotionally. There is something that uh, it feels like you've discovered a new hobby or a new, a new interest. Does that make any sense to you?
5: I can think of things in my life that might agree with that. I have to say, on the other hand, it doesn't say to watch out for Matilda or anything like that.
0: No. <laughs> um, Okay. Well, we'll we'll go on to the action card, and the action card, um, the player, is about, you know, letting loose and having fun. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah. Well, I, I must say, I am on a campaign to have more fun in my life, to spend weekends doing things that I actually enjoy doing, as opposed to things I feel I have to do. Do psychics ever get very specific with their prognostications?
0: Sometimes I can do that. There are a number of psychics who do do that, um, who absolutely can say, you know, okay, next Tuesday you know, at the corner of 4th and Main, you want to be careful crossing the street. But they won't predict, necessarily, that, that you're going to be hit by a truck or a bus or anything like that. They will just say, you know, you want to watch yourself. Because an ethical psychic should never, ever say that something bad is going to happen to you because that sets up expectations and, and can become a prophecy simply because somebody starts <laughs> you know, behaving in a weird way.
5: Sue Wilhide, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you, Seth.
4: It's been a great time. So, Seth, did you have any foreboding of, about having your future read?
5: Well, in the beginning, I did. But then it became clear that she wasn't going to tell me that I had about, you know, 10 hours to live or anything really bad. So after that, I was just curious to hear what she had to say.
4: And did you feel like she was profiling you specifically? Well, I don't
5: know. I mean, it was fairly general. And she was giving what was frankly very good advice. And I have to say, you could get good advice from a professional psychologist, but this was a heck of a lot more fun and probably a heck of a lot less expensive.
4: Well, the bottom line in the psychic business is it's a business. Now, Sue charged $30 for Seth's reading, but the prices range. One psychic states on her website that she won't even confirm an appointment until after payment. $70 for 15 minutes, $200 for an hour.
5: So at those prices, you want to be sure you're getting a bona fide peek into events to come. But what are you getting? Well, with Sue, I got this cautious look into what my future might hold and a nudge in some areas where I might be able to improve it. But other psychics claim to have really extraordinary powers.
4: Do they? It's a million dollar question, literally. That sum was offered to high profile British psychic Sally Morgan in exchange for evidence of her talent, according to University of London psychologist Christopher French. Chris, What
5: is a psychic, anyway? I mean, that sounds like a naive question, but I'm not quite sure whether that's a mind reader or someone who can predict the future or merely someone who tells you a lot about your
6: love life. I think psychics would claim to be able to do all of those things, and uh, in certain circumstances, maybe to do more. One common confusion is between psychics and mediums. Now, the difference there is that mediums are making a very specific claim. They are claiming that they are communicating with dead people. Many psychics will claim that they can do that as well, but they might also make other kinds of claims. I mean, in practice, the readings that you get from a medium or a psychic or or even an astrologer are very, very similar.
5: Are people born psychic? I I seem to recall that psychics will occasionally tell you that I've had this ability— uh you know ever since i was a child that kind of thing so so do they come into the world as psychics or do they go to psychic training school
6: both um you will find as you say that many psychics particularly the kind of very high profile psychics will tend to say that they've had this ability from the moment they were born they'll often say things like um you know i thought everyone could do this i thought that you know i i I could see dead people i thought everyone else could as well and then i realized that no they can't i've got this special gift so you have that school on the one hand but obviously as you can see from going onto the internet there are lots of psychics who claim that they can train you to be psychic and there are books that will tell you how you can enhance your psychic ability and so then the notion there is that we've all got this ability but we might not all cash in on it but that by following their techniques we can develop these abilities.
5: Well, cashing in seems to be part of the psychic business. In the uh, news recently has been a woman by the name of Sally Morgan billed as Britain's best loved psychic and she goes on the road. She gives Shows uh, one of her performances recently, or at least some series of them, in, in Dublin, Ireland, seems to have caused a bit of a backlash. Can Can you tell me about that?
6: Well, what happened was that, uh, as you say, Sally had been performing in Dublin, and there was a live radio phone-in the following day, and one of the callers into the station said that she had been at the performance, uh, and she'd been very impressed by Sally in the first half of the show but that in the second half of the show, this caller claimed that she was sitting at the back of the theatre, very high up, and she realised she could hear a male voice, and she didn't know where this male voice was coming from, but she and people sitting near her, as was confirmed by subsequent callers, reported that they realised that whatever this male voice said, Sally said about ten seconds later. So it might be something like um, the name's David, and 10 seconds later, Sally from the stage would say, there's a, a, a David, and uh, he died through such and such a means, and so on. And what the caller speculated was that maybe Sally was using a hidden earpiece to receive the information from whoever it was that was doing the speaking, and that furthermore, the information that was being passed on could have been obtained from talking to people as they were queuing up outside the theater to come in. But, but
5: this is a form of what they call, I believe, hot reading. Hot reading sounds to me like a racy novel for my book club. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hot reading, that's where, what, the psychic gets the information fed to them beforehand?
6: That's right. I mean, the basic difference is that cold reading is a technique which is used by deliberate con artists to convince complete strangers that, that you know all about them. Again, a very useful skill for a fake psychic to have. Hot reading, on the other hand, is where you've done the background research first. You have the information already, and you just give the appearance that it's coming through to you now via psychic means.
5: So she was caught out doing hot reading.
6: Well, again, I think we need to be careful what we say. Um, all we can say is that these allegations were made And now, initially, only the Irish Independent published them, and I thought that was a bit of a shame, really. So I wrote a piece for the Guardian Science Pages online, Um, and then that seemed to be picked up by lots of British newspapers that all suddenly began running stories which were talking about the fraudulent techniques that fake psychics can use. We have to say, of course, that we haven't got any proof that Sally was using an earpiece she actually explicitly denied that she was using an earpiece, only uh, subsequently a, a, a video recording on her own website actually showed her coming off stage at another show and removing an earpiece. so she's had lots of very embarrassing publicity out of this
5: it's somewhat perplexing in a way because people will go to see a magician, an illusionist without any uh, concern that it's all a trick. I mean, if they saw a woman in half on the stage, and, and then they find out subsequently that he didn't really saw a woman in half, that's okay. It's entertainment. It's all right. But somehow in the case of a psychic, we expect them to be honest.
6: Well, I mean, I, I agree with you entirely. I, mean, I love watching Conjurers. I mean, Conjuring is honest deception. As you say, we know we're being tricked. We just enjoy the thrill of seeing something that we know should be impossible and and being challenged to try and think, how on earth could they achieve that effect? Going to see psychics and mediums is a very different thing because, of course, they always use this disclaimer that what they're doing is for entertainment purposes only. But it's quite clear from the reactions of people in the audience that they don't think that it's for entertainment purposes only. They really do believe that they are now in touch with the spirit of their loved ones. And, and that I find rather disturbing.
4: Hold on to your crystal ball, and we'll be back with more obsessed conversation with psychologist Christopher French. But then you already knew that. It's prognostication on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. We return to Seth's conversation with Christopher French about the claims of psychic ability, in particular those of a British psychic, Sally Morgan.
5: Sally was actually offered to compete in the James Randi Educational Foundation Challenge where, you know, they'll give her a million dollars if she can prove her psychic powers. And, uh, in fact, there was a test that was set up to uh, have her take this challenge. I think you were involved in writing that test.
6: I was indeed. Well, uh, did
5: did she do it? Is she going to do it?
6: <laughs> strangely enough, she did not. Having gone on record saying how much she realized that you know, skeptics were needed in this particular domain and that, that these claims should be put to the test, when we have actually said, well, here's a test, you in your stage show clearly seem to be able to pick up on the spirits of of departed people from just looking at their photographs. We said, we've devised a very simple test. We have 10 photographs of 10 dead people, and we'll give you a list of 10 names. You match the names to the people. You don't even have to get them all right to be deemed to have passed the test. And then you can go on for the million dollar challenge. Strangely enough, she didn't show up on the day. Um, And this this is fairly typical. Now, we also, and I think this is important to emphasize, said that if Sally wasn't happy with our test, we would be happy to work with her to devise a test that she was happy with, provided it was under well-controlled conditions. We're still waiting to hear back from her.
5: My goodness. Well, it sounds like she has no illusions about her own abilities, at least. Uh, you, you had mentioned hot reading. We talked about that. What about cold reading? Because I think that that is uh, the, the general technique used by psychics, is it not?
6: It is indeed. I mean, cold reading is in some ways a more useful technique, because it, it can be used on anyone under pretty much any circumstances. On the other hand, the results will not be as impressive as those that you achieve via hot reading. One part of cold reading is to come out with certain types of statements that sound as if they are very perceptive about your innermost personality, but actually apply to everyone.
5: Can, can you give me an example
6: of that? I can. I mean, one of my favorites, one of, one of the ones I always cite is, if, you, if I was in a reading for you now, Seth, I could say something like, um, I'm sensing that you, you have a lot of potential that you've not been able to cash in on and make full use of. You've achieved quite a lot in life, but there's so much more you could achieve if you could just use that potential, if you could tap into it. Now... We all think of ourselves that way. Um, Another thing you could say is uh, I'm I'm getting the sense that you've got a better than average sense of humour. Well, of course you think you've got a better than average sense of humour. If other people don't find things funny that you laugh at, they're the ones with the problem, aren't they? (laughs) And there are lots of statements like this. On the surface, you, you come across as being quite together, but dig a little bit deeper. There's some real insecurities there. Again, this is the human condition. But people think that they are unique, that they're, they're the only people, that they're the only ones that feel like this. Now, to some extent, the, you can kind of pick up on maybe nonverbal cues. but I think that's often overplayed. I think a lot of people think you can read more into nonverbal communication than you actually can. You can't tell anything very specific. You can tell degrees of interest and agreement, but that's about it. A lot of cold reading is about the clever use of language. Psychics tend to ask an awful lot of questions, but they do it in quite a subtle way, so it sounds as if they're asking for confirmation of something that they already know. If I were to claim that I was now in touch with your dearly departed grandfather, I might say something like, was he a tidy man? And if you say yes, I'll say, yes, I thought he was. Everything had its place, didn't it? If you say no, I'll say, no, I didn't think he was. He never used to put things away after himself, did he? You know, you've just given me the answer. It sounded like I was asking for confirmation of something I already knew, but I didn't. You told me, and I elaborated on it. And that, it sounds very crude the way I just described it there, but in skilled hands, it can be very, very effective.
5: Well, Chris, everyone knows that the brain makes plenty of electrical signals. So is it really impossible that some sort of psychic communication could take place?
6: Well, according to physicists, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, the actual, the actual physics of the situation is such that these signals would be so very, very, very weak and would be drowned out basically by background electromagnetic activity. So it doesn't seem to work via... Uh, in any kind of electromagnetic means. Another thing is that parapsychologists claim that it doesn't seem to be dependent on distance. Uh, Telepathy, they would say, is just as effective if you're dealing with two people sitting next to each other as if you're dealing with people that are on the opposite side of the planet. So, again, that doesn't fit with any kind of electromagnetic means of communication. Now... I personally do not believe that paranormal forces exist, but I'm always willing to say, well, I might be wrong. Maybe there's some mechanism we're not aware of yet. Maybe it's possible that these things are true. But I'll only be convinced when I see evidence that's reliable, replicable, and can be produced, not necessarily 100% of the time, but enough of the time under control conditions for me to think, wow, that's amazing.
5: Chris French, it's been a pleasure to speak with
6: you. My pleasure, too.
4: Psychologist and head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths, University of London, is the title for Christopher French.
5: The ability to foresee the future is seductive. I mean, who wouldn't want to know what's going to happen? So the business of fortune-telling goes back a long way. I mean, imagine you're on the savannah 100,000 years ago, and you find a dead bird. Then a terrible storm comes along. You might connect those things in your mind and conclude that bad storms will occur whenever there are dead birds.
4: Right. We all want to make sense of our world and feel like we have some control over events. Even the prophecies of Nostradamus in the what century? 16th. 16th century probably gave some people a sense that they could prepare for what was to come.
5: Yes, if anyone can prepare with Nostradamus' prophecies such as...
7: From the sky will come the great king of terror.
5: I mean, what does that mean?
4: An inbound asteroid? A plane? Fire? Who knows? But prophecy goes back farther than Nostradamus. Some claim that the Mayans, whose culture flourished 1,500 years before the arrival of the Spanish in the Americas and who didn't have telescopes or a good theory about the workings of the solar system, had a calendar that predicted the end of the world, December 21st, 2012.
5: Guy P. Harrison, you've written about this doomsday prophecy.
3: Is the world going to end in 2012? Well, maybe it will, Seth. Maybe the world will end on December 21st, 2012, as some people believe. But I doubt it. So I advise people to keep contributing to your pensions and keep flossing.
4: But wait, Seth. Some people are pretty nervous about this because the Mayan calendar seems to run out in December. There's apparently no 2013. Ask him about that.
5: Okay. Uh, But wait, Guy. Some people are pretty nervous about this because the Mayan calendar seems to run out in December. There's apparently no 2013 and I'd like to ask you about that.
3: Here's the deal. I've checked with Maya scholars. These are people who actually study the Maya culture, okay? These aren't people with new-age websites and all. These are, these are people with PhDs who, you know, actually take the time to figure out what these people were saying. And guess what they all say consistently? The Maya did not predict the end of the world in 2012. What it is, is their calendar is cyclical, a little over 5,000 years, and it's coming up on the end of one of their cycles. Maybe. There's even some controversy about that. But so what? The scholars, everyone that you check will tell you it doesn't mean anything. In fact, I found one guy who found a prediction by the Maya of celebrations occurring something like in the year 4,700, celebrations of some anniversary of one of their kings. So clearly they thought the world would still be here way up into the year 4000 okay so they were seeing a future beyond 2012 in their own writings so i it, it's really this is just a uh, complete exaggeration based on really nothing well, exaggerated nothing
5: uh, do do they offer a um, a mechanism or at least a scenario for how the world is going to end i mean is it just you know suddenly poof everything goes away with i mean is is there anything that they're predicting will happen that will cause the end of the world, or is that
3: just left up to the uh, reader? Well, a lot is left up to the imagination, but yes, many people are offering all kinds of different scenarios. The most popular is just a general chaos, just... The climate goes crazy, earthquakes, volcanoes, all kinds of things go wrong. But the ones that really intrigue me are really specific. There's one, for example, um, Planet X. And I've spoken to believers who think it's hiding behind the sun right now. And we're going to actually collide with it. I guess it's going to come out from behind the sun and hit us. Others believe there's an asteroid on the way that will strike us or actually multiple asteroids that will hit us right on that date. And it's interesting because they're taking... I'm fascinated by how these apocalyptic beliefs develop because people are taking the ancient here. It's not really ancient; it's you know centuries ago, and they're trying to match it with modern science to make it seem, I think, more credible and appeal to more people. And there's one of the popular claims is there will be a pole shift, and which is interesting because magnetic pole shifts do happen every now and then in the Earth's history, but it's no big deal. It doesn't you know cause chaos and cities to explode, but they will add a little spin to it and say that it will actually cause the Earth to stop rotating, which is impossible, as any astronomer or physicist will tell you. The Earth is not going to stop rotating. And so you do have many of these specific little explanations, but absolutely none of them hold water.
5: And and none of them is actually tied into what the Mayans had to say.
3: Oh, exactly, exactly. There's no—yeah, you will not find any Maya inscriptions anywhere that say, on December 12, 2012, a mysterious planet will come out of outer space and smash into us no it's nothing like that at all and you know should add Seth that many people think the maya are some ancient uh, civilization that's been wiped away by time and all but it's a fact that the maya are still with us they're still maya people alive and well today and what's interesting is that leading up to this hype and in last several years you could ask any maya person anywhere what do you think about the 2012 doomsday? And they would tell you, you know, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this. This is crazy. We don't believe this.
5: But stories about big planets that are going to, you know, cause uh, something that will ruin your whole day, not to mention your whole planet, these have been out there for a very long time now. But this sounds to me just like the Heaven's Gate story a, a decade or so ago when the aliens were coming into our solar system and they were hiding behind a comet, and now this devastating planet is hiding behind the sun. Do people really believe that?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. I've talked to them. I've questioned them about it, and I, I've, I, I'm I've. not a big debater, argumentative kind of guy. I usually li- do a lot of listening, and then I ask questions, I make suggestions, and I. I, tr- I always try to inspire people to just think more, think for themselves rather than just argue with people. And I think my approach works because I get a lot more out of people. And so the things I've heard just would blow your mind. I mean, people are scared. And, you know, I have to say this, Seth, is you know you and i joke about it a little make these jokes but it's actually it can be very serious and at times i have to remind myself that this is a serious subject because i've just in the in recent months i've been contacted by two mothers of students that i used to i used to teach science at a caribbean school and they were the mothers were concerned because their children were freaking out over 2012. They were at one girl was actually losing sleep over it and very concerned about something was going to happen. And there's a, a NASA astronomer David Morrison who's reported that he's gotten emails from mothers who were contemplating killing their children so they would avoid this apocalypse that's going to happen in 2012. And he he uh, received an email from two teenagers that were contemplating suicide because they didn't want to go through this great disaster. So we always have to keep in mind, you know. and this is, this is one of the things that motivates me to try to bring more reason and skepticism to the world because your life, you, you place your life in more danger when you don't think clearly. I'm a firm believer in that, and I, I just try to get people to think.
5: Well, finally then, Guy, let me ask you this. How do you see December 22nd? Let's, let's take the optimistic assumption here that the world doesn't end on the 21st, and you wake up, it's the 22nd. All these people have predicted the end of the world. It didn't happen. Is that going to, you know, sort of uh, put the final nail in the coffin of end-of-world prophecies, in your opinion?
3: Oh, no, Seth. I've been down this road before. No, no, no. <laughs> December 22nd. I, I, okay, I will make a bold prediction right here, okay? Keep this. Write it down. The date will either be changed— to something comfortably forward a few years, maybe they'll say, oh wait, we misread the calendar, it's actually 2015, 2017, they'll push it forward, or they will say, it did happen, it did happen, but it was a spiritual destruction, and now we're in closer harmony with the universe. You may not have noticed, because you're not on board with it, but yes, the prophecy was true. The thing is, there's this apocalyptic porn market that seems to cater to our reptilian brains out there, and it will always be alive, it will always thrive. I I love doomsday movies, for example. I love them. They're entertaining to me. I I can't resist them. But the fact is, we don't need to worry. December 22nd is not guaranteed, but it's very likely to come without incident.
5: I take it you're going to pay your estimated taxes for 2012. And I will keep flossing, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Guy Harrison, thanks so much for talking to me while uh, we still could. Thank you very much for having me, Seth. Take care.
4: Guy P. Harrison is a writer and author of 50 popular beliefs that people think are
0: true. You double check the numbers?
1: I triple check, my friend. I wish we were wrong, but we're not. The Earth's crust is destabilizing.
3: All our scientific advances, our fancy machines, the Mayans saw this coming thousands of years ago. I thought we'd have more time.
5: Coming up, if the ancient Mayans had laptops, would they have gotten into the prophecy business? Some modern researchers think that a supercomputer can foresee
4: world events. It's Prague, not Stication on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science.
8: I'm Jane Polez.
5: Okay, the Mayans and mind readers may or may not have a mental inside track on things to come. But could a
4: machine? That is the hope of, well, the European Union, whose countries have pledged a billion dollars, that's billion with a B, to fund the development of the Living Earth Simulator.
5: Which is a massive supercomputer project that will try to predict global events. Now, to do this, it will be fed massive amounts of data from just about every conceivable source,
4: websites, Twitter tweets, news feeds, and so on, and crunch it together. To see if patterns emerge about the course of some human events, social, political, economic. For example, could it predict the next Arab Spring, the presidential election of 2016, or the next housing boom? It's all on the table, in theory at least, for physicist Alessandro Vespignani, the project's lead data planner. The ambitions of the Living Earth Simulator, in a word, huge.
7: Just imagine what we are collecting in terms of data nowadays. And let's imagine to combine all those data in, uh, together uh, and embed in the geography of the world and try to get basically a huge, construct a huge synthetic world that allow you to make forecasts. The Living Earth Simulator is trying to create the infrastructure and the computational tools to do all that.
5: Tell me some of the data that are going into this thing.
7: Well, you can imagine, uh, you know, listening uh, to all the Twitter messages that are sent around the world to all the communication on Facebook to all the people flying around the world and how they go from one place to another and uh, where uh, mobile phones are at this moment in the world all the census and demographic data that we can collect uh, the indices of the stock markets and so on and so forth but it's not just a matter of data so you don't want just to have you know data and then a black box and spit out uh, another uh, data or, or a number. You want understanding. And so, you know, you just need to collect all those data and plug in meaningful model of the world. And those meaningful model will allow to have predictive power, anticipatory power on on what's going on. Well, can you give me an example of what well, sort of thing you could predict? Well, let's imagine, for instance, the spreading of an emerging disease. You want to know, given the fact that the WHO told you that there is a cluster with 10 infected people in uh, in Mexico, as it happened for the H1N1 Mm -hmm. pandemic, you want to be able to project out the disease will spread across the world because people is traveling, is uh, jumping on a flight and going to other places and try to predict when the pandemic will peak. To do that, you have to combine all the data about the mobility of people, the natural history of the disease, and so on and so forth in big models that allow you to make this prediction.
5: W- would it have helped, for example, to have actually predicted the Arab Spring, or the the discontent in Syria, are these the sorts of things that the Living Earth Simulator actually could have told you about beforehand?
7: These are the things that we believe are the low-hanging fruits, actually. And these are things that can be done probably in the next few years. And the idea is to find precursors that would be able to tell you when those kind of things happens. Two things that strike yeah. me, Alessandro, here. One is that the Europeans are
5: funding this to the tune of big money. Are they going to share the results coming out of this, if you will, computerized crystal ball? And the other thing is these data that it's collecting, tweets and emails and stuff like that, isn't there a privacy issue there? I think there would be in the U.S.,
7: well, there are privacy issues, uh, but there are a lot of open source data that are generated. And uh, many of those uh, companies like Facebook or Twitter, they sell those data. So you can imagine that big agencies or governmental agencies can buy those data. Of course, what the European Union is going to produce in terms of science will be will be available to the world. But this is a project that is so ambitious that it's like sending the man on the moon. Of course, the European Union is parading the, this initiative, but I'm pretty sure that that other places in the world and the U.S. in the first place will will join this effort.
5: This is a project that in some ways is comparable to social science, what, uh, for example, the Large Hadron Collider is to physical science
7: this is the idea it's even more than that in a sense you know what you can imagine if we want to use a metaphor is that what the society is doing now through all those data is to create a kind of sensory system a digital sensory system that allow you to monitor what is happening to society to the world this is exactly what happens to your body when you grow up you start to have all your sensory system coordinated and you start to learn about the world you start to anticipate the world you create models of what the world out there is. So you start to understand that, you know, a fire is hot and you don't have to touch fire. Now, with all this digital uh, data that we receive about the world and the society, we can start to create a kind of model, cognitive models of what will happen to society, what what is going to happen. But we need to develop the models and this is the big conceptual challenge, the theoretical challenge of the project.
5: When do you expect the Living Earth Simulator to actually be cranking out some uh, predictions?
7: Well, for sure the demonstrators uh, will be able in, the, in during the first uh, three, four years uh, of the project, what we call the ramp-up phase, uh, to produce some success stories. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we will have a way to look at social uh, cooperative phenomena, emerging, uh, emerging behavior in a totally different way. I think that we will have a lot to say about global health problems in a predictive and quantitative way. I think we, we will be able to say a lot about, you know, urban development, uh, traffic, uh, and how the people relate to those issues in terms of the, their movement. So, you know, and of course the full Living Earth sim- Simulator will uh, a much longer time span.
5: Will there be no more surprises for society?
7: You no know, well the surprises are always there you know this is like what we were saying we anticipate we can make predictions but those predictions will be part of our system and so the society will adapt and will change also because of that predictions and so you have a constant feedback mechanism that we is going to change constantly the future and it's uh, you know it's like weather forecast you have continuously to adjust your prediction concerning the new data that you you are receiving.
5: Alessandro Vespignani, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you.
4: Alessandro Vespignani is a physicist at Northeastern University in Boston and the lead data planner for the team developing the Living Earth Simulator.
1: I'm highly skeptical that they'll be able to predict the future of history.
4: Ken Caldera is a climate scientist, and he knows something about computers and computer modeling. At his office at the Carnegie Institution, Department of Global Ecology at Stanford University, he works with massive computer models of the Earth's climate system, which is mind-bogglingly complex. And so he's skeptical about the claim that the Living Earth Simulator can, even with enough data, predict in detail the future of global events.
1: Well, there's several different things. One is the essential unpredictability of the future. I run climate models in my daily work, and we can change one little bit somewhere down in the tiniest little number, and two weeks later, the weather will be completely different across the entire planet. And and so even if you have nearly complete information about the state of the system, because it's chaotic, there's fundamental limits to predictability. And in the real world, you don't get this full, complete information. And so the, the hope that you would have of actually being able to predict something like weather on the timescale of weeks is just a physical impossibility.
5: What am I hearing you say there? Is it that we just don't have enough data? And if we had, you know, weather stations every 20 feet across the globe or, or something like that, then we could do a much better job? Or is it simply that the system is so complex that... There's just really no hope ever of being able to predict what the weather is going to be like, you know, three weeks down the road.
1: There's no hope of ever being able to predict weather three weeks down the road, even with complete information, just because quantum mechanical fluctuations are probably enough to be amplified to change the future of weather. And then when you add social systems and you think of all the sort of quantum mechanics going on in our brains, it's that much more impossible to predict. So I'm highly skeptical that they can come up with a model of the living Earth that can really predict social behavior in the future.
5: Well, they're talking about being able to predict the progress of, for example, epidemics or social movements, uh, the Arab Spring. uh, I asked about that. Are there any things they would be able to predict, anything useful,
1: something worth the money? In, In the same way that we're unable to predict the weather several weeks out, we are able to project climate many decades or even centuries out. And so there are statistical trends that they might be able to predict. Uh, You might be able to say, for example, that that an epidemic will grow or or die out on its own. But whether you'd be able to actually predict the details of how it develops, I'm very skeptical.
5: So Ken, what's the difference between modeling the weather and modeling long-term climate?
1: When we're trying to model weather, we're trying to make deterministic predictions about specific events at specific times and specific places. When we're trying to predict the climate, we're trying to predict statistical properties and broad trends. And and so in social systems, there might be some parts of the problem where you can predict broad trends. But the idea that you're going to be able to predict exactly when a Syrian uprising is going to happen just seems to me implausible.
5: But given your skepticism about the Living Earth Simulator's ability to predict even uh, long-term trends, should we have confidence in your climate models?
1: Climate models are based on decades of observations and improved process understanding. And we put those together in a mathematical model to get our best projection of what's likely to happen in the future. But it's a cloudy crystal ball. Unfortunately, it's the best crystal ball that we have. Part of... The nature of being human on this planet is that we need to make decisions under uncertainty. And so we're constantly trying to get the best picture of the future and the best understanding of how our actions might influence that future. But we're, we're never going to have real predictive capability. And I'm sure in this project, while some of it sounds very grandiose, that there are probably scientists doing very sensible projects that will lead to some predictive capability in some areas. I I think we just need to be a little bit cognizant that the idea that you're going to have some model of everything that's going to predict everything that we want to know, it's just infeasible. Ken Caldera, thanks for talking to me. Thank you.
4: Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution, Department of Global Ecology at Stanford University. Well, maybe predicting the future really just comes down to good data. Could it all be in the numbers?
5: Well, I'll tell you, Molly, the thing is that this makes me think of Isaac Newton when he came out with his you know, physics of the 17th century there. It sounded as if the entire universe were just this giant bit of clockwork, and all you had to know was where every particle was at every time and its momentum or whatever, and you could predict everything that was going to happen forever. And as Ken points out, not true. Quantum mechanics makes that untrue.
4: So, Seth, are you going to follow the advice of Sue, the psychic, who suggests that you work too hard and you need to play a little bit more, at least on weekends? People have been saying that to me for years,
5: and it doesn't seem to help much. Even
4: <laughs> even non-psychics have said that to you.
5: Yes, indeed, they have.
4: <laughs> well, you've probably already divined whom I will thank for helping put the show together. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden.
5: Also support from Reno Sholsky, david and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the set Institute. We devote one show a month to critical thinking, Skeptic Check, because to understand what science is, you need to know what it's not. And a big thanks also
4: to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check prognostication. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
5: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because of something your mom said to you when you were young... Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
7: Above your heads and below your feet, the forces of destruction will wreak. Oh, they shall wreak havoc and hang thus Hang on, wreak.
4: hang on, Nostro, you're not really getting into it. I mean, this needs to be, I mean, this, this has to be fearful. You have to put the fear into us and into your voice.
7: Oh, très désolé.
4: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family
8: Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimburger.org.
4: Want to support the show but are too busy surfing the net and shopping for shoes online? We've got the fix. Go to BigPictureScience.org's support page and download the Good Search toolbar. It takes less than a minute. The radio show will get a penny for every search and even more when you make purchases from the Good Shop. Make Big Picture Science your charity of choice and support us without any cost to you. Good search and Big Picture Science, searching that makes a difference.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you.